therapist and personal trainer and mom of three living in the Bay Area, California. And this podcast is really focused on taking the science of behavior analysis and applying it to uh, new settings, new situations outside of what it's traditionally been used for, which is autism service. Uh, And usually most of what I talk about is related to fitness and parenting. So last time we talked about desensitization and I really thought that was good. That's going to be the episode on that and we can move on to a new topic. So I actually moved on and recorded a different episode and then today I just started thinking about it again and I really just want to keep talking about it because I think this is actually super meaningful and I want to dive deeper into the topic and get into the nitty gritty of how you can be using this to show up for yourself, for your kids, for your fitness program and uh, some just some different ways to think about it. So just thinking about desensitization, you know, what does this mean? So people use this in a way to describe someone as calloused or unfeeling, but uh, by definition, it really means more that you remain unreactive. So it's not that the stimulus doesn't affect you, it's just that you don't necessarily engage in that knee-jerk reaction that you might have engaged in in the past. So today when I was at the park, I noticed that a mom was being rough with her child and uh I think she was upset she was upset because he had she felt as though he had been just kind of unaware of some of the littler kids in the playground and she responded by being rough with him and yelling at him and and grabbing him and initially when I see something like this, I get very, I'm very affected by it. It's really upsetting to me. And I, I basically don't want to be in the presence of that stimulus, right? It's because it's so upsetting. And it reminded me of when I lived in Illinois, I was at a, at a building for an, an appointment one time. And there was a mom in the waiting room and she was super unkind to her child. He was probably four. And I couldn't even drive past that building for months afterwards. I just, I had him in my head all of the time. I was like fantasizing about uh, like adopting him. I just, uh, I couldn't sleep. I was always thinking about him and I just couldn't even be around that building. And actually when I started trying to figure out once I was sort of ending my time as a stay-at-home parent, I started trying to figure out what do I want to do with my life outside of the home. I thought, what is going to be the thing that I'm going to come into contact with as little human suffering as possible, right? Because I, it just, after I had kids, it affected me in a new way. Uh, If I went to a store and I saw someone hitting their child, I just couldn't, I just couldn't function. You know, it was so upsetting to me. And so I started being scared of like going places. I started being scared of the mall was somewhere that I would see that sometimes. And I didn't want to go to the mall. And like I said, I couldn't drive past that building. And So today when this happened, it sort of brought up this concept of desensitization again. And I thought, hmm, what does this mean, right? Like if I take this this behavior analytic concept and I think, okay, is that the goal? Like, do we want to get desensitized to the suffering of others? I mean, in my podcast last week, I was talking about how a little bit we want to get desensitized to our own suffering so that we can tolerate it, right? So that we can show up for our lives in the ways that we value. Uh, So I started thinking like, what does that mean to be desensitized to something? And 
doesn't mean the same when applied to other people as it does apply to ourselves. And what I came to realize is that it doesn't mean that you don't feel, right? When I see something that upsets me, I'm not desensitized to the feeling. That feeling is still present. That aversiveness of that stimulus is still very much there. The thing that it means is that I feel it, but I feel without reacting, right? That's the whole point is not that we escape it. What we were talking about last week is how can we move towards the aversive stimulus without seeking something to numb. So if we're going to talk about what's numbing us, it's what we're probably already doing to avoid that aversive stimulus. That's not feeling. But desensitization means you feel it, but you sit in the feeling. You don't run away from the feeling. You feel without reacting. So this is meaningful because when people say, oh, he's desensitized to that, right? I think I just want to be careful about that because what it means is is not that you're calloused to human suffering. And it doesn't mean that you're callous to your own suffering. When I'm in the middle of a really hard workout, you know, I don't avoid the feeling of it. You could do that. You could You could do a really hard workout and you could... I don't know, take drugs first or something so that you don't feel how aversive it is. But it's like most of the growth happens in feeling how aversive it is and choosing to stay anyways, right? You could find a way to to stay in the discomfort of that aversive stimulus without feeling it. That's That's usually why people do get addicted to something because they can't stand it, but they can't escape it either. Maybe. Right? If I can escape the gym, I will. But let's say I can't escape a bad home environment or I can't escape a, a bad relationship or struggling to get out, right? to find the strength to get out. So people find ways to stay in it, but they are, they're numbing so they don't have to feel it. And the goal here is really to choose to feel it because it's the feeling it that A, makes you stronger and more capable but sometimes it's also the feeling it that that you can use that energy. The, the pain that you experience while you're feeling it, you can use as fuel to do something, right? Instead of running from the pain of seeing a little kid be hurt by his parent, I could say, I want to do something about this, right? As I mean, let's assume that it, like it happened this morning, it was quick. There, was, there wasn't a need to intervene. It was just like a sad situation that upset me and I'm super sensitive to that. So truly it doesn't take much with kids to upset me. So it wasn't a situation where there was any danger, but I could use the discomfort I've experienced and I could say, okay, I am even more passionate about trying to help moms find a way to care for themselves because that's the crux of the issue, right? That's the crux of what's going on here probably I mean, in addition to maybe her, the whole rest of her life history that I'm not aware of, but what we can't tolerate in ourselves, we can't tolerate in others. So she had been upset because she thought maybe he had hurt someone or she might have felt the pressure of being a good parent. And she had seen her child as an extension of her and her value, right? Unfortunately, right? Because when you get so fused with how your child is perceived because you perceive them as an extension of you, you react very strongly. And she couldn't tolerate the mistake that he had made and she couldn't handle that he had exposed himself and thus her to potential criticism. So it tells you something about 
potentially how she views herself. You know, if I can't tolerate seeing my son make a mistake, how do I react when I make a mistake? You know, if I can't tolerate when I'm in pain and I'm seeking some way to numb, how can I tolerate when my child is in pain? Normal pain. We're, when, when I talk about suffering here during this podcast and pain, we're talking about the pain of growth. If your child is suffering, 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 like uh, bodily harm or injury, that is obviously not what I'm suggesting. I'm talking about the suffering of life, regular run-of-the-mill suffering, which none of us will escape. It's such a part of life. So when you see that suffering in your child and you don't even know how to cope with your own suffering without seeking some way to buffer it or mitigate it or minimize it, you're certainly going to try and find the same thing for your child, right? Your child is crying. Don't cry. Don't cry. It's okay. It's okay. Your child is crying. Do you want a cookie? Do you want to go get this? Do you want to go get this? Your child is crying. Stop crying. You're fine, right? You can see like parents have a number of ways Potentially many of those ways we were raised with, which tells you a little bit about maybe why we have some deficits around our ability to suffer in a healthy way. We have some of these reactions to our kids' suffering. And you can see that most of them are rooted in just stopping it. Just, oh, it's so aversive for me to see you suffer. Please stop. Stop. Right? instead of kids seeing suffering as just a really normal part of the human experience. And until you're able to tolerate suffering in yourself without numbing it, without running from it, you can't tolerate the suffering of another. How could you? Maybe you can't even see it because you've, come, you've become so accustomed to numbing it that it's not even visible. You've maybe become accustomed to those knee-jerk responses that you use to avoid it. And addiction doesn't have to look like the way we maybe perceive addiction. Addiction doesn't have to be drugs and alcohol. Addiction can be when I'm bored at the streetlight waiting for it to turn green. The discomfort of the boredom feels too aversive for me. So I pick up my phone to quickly scroll, right? And I lose a moment of maybe just being able to sit in that discomfort and feel it and let it teach me something. So if we can't even potentially recognize suffering in ourselves because we're always distracting ourselves from it or numbing ourselves from it, how could you see the look of fear in your child's eyes or sadness in your child's eyes or anxiety in your child's eyes and tolerate it? How could I look at that child suffering and stay and stay there without running away from it? In my situation this morning, he was safe. Everything was fine, but I could just hear his mom yelling at him. And I could see, you know, the subtle wincing and the fear in his eyes. And I could see it. I was witnessing it. And I didn't want to run away from it. I wanted to really just have a moment for him. You know, I wanted to catch his eye and smile at him. I wanted to find a way to help him through that moment so he didn't feel so alone. And if I run from it, 
I can't because it hurts me too badly to see him suffer, right? That seems almost kind of unfair, doesn't it? Like he's the one suffering, but I'm like, I can't handle this. So it's like if I can handle my own suffering, if I can look straight ahead at my own suffering, I can now show up for someone else and I can say, I can't take it away from you, but I can witness it. You know, I can sit with you in it for a minute. When I'm at the gym with my son and he's struggling, I don't gloss over it. So he's hurting like physically, you know, emotionally. He's, it's not only the weight that he's lifting, but it's thoughts that he's processing from school. You know, I mean, being, being 13 is hard. Being a kid is hard. I remember thinking, am I enough? Am I smart enough? Am I pretty enough? Am I funny enough? Am I good enough? I mean, geez, these are questions that sort of follow you for a long time throughout your life. And sometimes when I pick him up to go to the gym or when we meet at the gym after school, he's emotionally, he's not feeling great. He's exhausted. He's had a long day at school and he's thinking, I don't want to do this. What I'm asking is instead of going home, and numbing out with video games to try to forget the experience of this day. I'm asking you to be completely sober. I'm identifying sober as like not engaging in the addiction, not engaging in that numbing behavior. I'm asking you to be super present with all of those feelings that you're having. And I'm asking you to lift weight. <laughs> so I just, I do want to say this is totally of his own. These are his own strength training goals. I would never like impose this on a child if they didn't want to do it uh but it's his goal and sometimes you don't feel like engaging in your goal so he'll you know be at the gym the nanny will drop him off at the gym and he's you know saying I don't feel like doing it today and I understand that because sometimes you just want to go home and you want to numb out and not feel those feelings but I really want to help him be good at that I want to help him be good at feeling those feelings so that he doesn't have to constantly seek to not feel them. And so that he can show up when people around him feel them. He knows how to show up because he can show up for himself. So sometimes the weightlifting facilitates a sort of release. Because it's so taxing. It's taxing on the nervous system, right? And sometimes he will tear up. And in the past, I would have told him we could stop. Right, like especially with him as my firstborn, he was my guinea pig. I did everything wrong. If I saw him cry, if I saw him experience any discomfort, I would, we're done. We don't have to do this. It's okay. It's okay. Right? If somebody was mean to him at school, we're switching schools. If somebody was mean to him in a neighborhood, we're moving houses. <laughs> my co parent can validate this. I really really struggled to see him suffering and it was just because I was in a place where I couldn't tolerate my own right so I could just I could never see that I could never see him in pain part of the other thing is as a parent when you see your child in pain sometimes it triggers something in you it triggers an aversive stimulus in you of like my child wouldn't be in pain if I was a better mom right my child wouldn't be in pain if I had done this right so it's almost like when you're fused with that thought, 
it's almost like every time your child is in pain, it's it's a message to you about how you have failed. So now they're in pain and now you're in pain. You're experiencing an aversive internal stimulus of that thought. So you're like, I got to shut this down. So the way that I shut this down by making sure that I never have to face the possibility that I did something wrong as a parent or that I'm not a good parent is to always make sure you're happy. If you're always happy, I never have to worry that I did something wrong. I never have to worry that I messed up. I just couldn't sit with that thought. And after 13 years of being a parent, I think you start to sit in the the knowledge that, of course, you've messed up. Of course, you have done it wrong sometimes, right? That comes with time. But in the beginning, I was not... I was not good at this. And so I in the past, I would have told him, like, let's stop. In the past, I might have told him, you're fine. It's okay. You're fine. You know, or I might have pretended not to notice. Now I do none of those things. I see it. I see him uncomfortable. I see him struggling under both the physical and mental weight of life. And I tell him how far he's come. You've already done three sets. You only have one more right? Tell him how many more. Tell him I'm proud. Tell him I know this is hard, but he's got this. You know, you did three sets. You have one more. You've got it. You're so strong. You have got it. I validate the suffering. I really see it, but I don't stay there and I don't give him permission to stop. Of course, he can choose to stop the workout on his own, but I don't want him to think that he can't see it through. We can modify it, we can reduce the weight, we can do any number of things, but we're not stopping. Because stopping means he came into contact with the white hot pain of that stimulus and told himself, I can't do it. And then I agreed. It's the same with clients. I'm never going to agree when a client says they can't do it. Yes, maybe you can't do it like this, but we will adjust and you can absolutely do it in a different way. It's tricky when you're an adult because you may fluctuate between two ends of the spectrum. So you set your bar way too high to the extent that it's almost unachievable. Then you white knuckle it as long as you can and then it becomes too much. It's too overwhelming because you set the bar too high. It wasn't sustainable. And then you finally get to a point where something has to give. Right, It's starting to impact the other values that are meaningful to you in your life, starting to affect your sanity. And you tell yourself something like, it's okay to stop and rest. Like, it's okay to, to end this. It's okay to eat this thing tonight to reward myself. It's okay to uh, quit this workout. So I have two thoughts on this. One, if you didn't tell yourself you were going to do a specific workout or eat a specific way, and you allow yourself to come and go when it feels too hard, you allow yourself to eat what you want, that's okay. So do that. You probably won't see any progress, but you didn't make any promises to yourself about what you would accomplish, so it's okay to stop. If you tell yourself, I'm not going to eat any treats today, which I'm not an advocate for, this is... This is like an all or nothing thinking, right? This is someone that says, I'm not going to eat any treats for, you know, a month. 
and that's how I'm going to lose this weight. This is not a sustainable plan because a week in, it's going to start feeling really hard, like literally a day in for me. And what happens is you tell yourself, I've done pretty good for a week. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to have a treat now. And then it starts being a thing that sort of happens all the time. I've done pretty good. I can do this now. So if you didn't make a promise to yourself about that, it's not a big deal. But if you did, now you're creating this situation where you're building up a learning history of I'm the kind of person that makes promises to myself that I don't keep. But if you told me you were going to do something specific, then you need to do it. So what I want for my clients is to set the bar lower, but like I'm doing this. Come hell or high water, I'm doing this. You know, I'm going to eat a piece of cake, but I'm only eating this piece of cake. I'm not eating three pieces. After dinner tonight, I'm just eating the one. That's a sustainable model. That's something you can get on board with. If, you, if you're the kind of person that you start by eating three pieces of cake, maybe we say you're just going to eat two. And we slowly shape your behavior over time. That's fine. But the caveat here is that you need to choose something that's doable. If you told yourself you're going to do something, you need to do it. Because the biggest negative consequence of setting promises to yourself and not keeping them isn't weight gain. The biggest negative consequence is a total lack of trust in yourself. So many people are resistant to try working out again or to hire a personal trainer or to try eating it, to even try, because they think, I've done this. I have been down this road, and I failed. And it's too painful to risk potentially failing again. It's too painful to have another data point in my learning history of a time that, you know, I didn't keep a promise to myself, so I'm not even going to try. Without recognizing that the problem was in the plan, the problem was in the goals, the problem wasn't in you, nobody could sustain that. The bar is so crazy high, it's almost impossible to be successful. So you set the bar low, but you finish. You start to build up a sense of trust in yourself. When you say you're going to do something, you do it. Otherwise, every time you tell yourself you're going to do something, it's another opportunity to break that promise to yourself. It's another data point in the learning history of your life that reinforces to you that escape is the only way for you to tolerate discomfort. And if you show up like this for yourself, how could you show up any differently for the people you love? When something becomes uncomfortable, when some experience, when some relationship, when some moment becomes uncomfortable. I can tell you as a parent that there has been nothing more triggering to me than seeing my kids suffer. And most of that has been because of my belief that they're not strong enough to handle it. And and the reason I have that belief is because of my own belief, right, about myself. I think it's going to damage them. It's going to traumatize them. It's going to make them feel incapable. It's going to affect their self-esteem. But why? Why do I believe that about them? Well, what do I believe about myself? There's a difference between the way I was raised and the way I'm raising my kids. And this isn't to insult the hard work that my parents put in who did their best. 
but like culturally in this in this time that I was raised, kids were expected to suffer silently without support or adjustment. You may have been thrown into the deep end because someone around you believed it would make you strong or you would figure it out or it would help you grow. But because the expectation was so high, because the level of challenge was so inappropriate, all it taught you is that struggle is dangerous and that it was usually too hard for you, that you usually would fail, and so you might as well just escape early on. I took this belief into my role as a mother early on and I attempted to shield my kids from suffering, to make every environment so perfect they wouldn't have to feel what I felt. But what does that say to them? What happens when your kids see you constantly rearranging their environment for them? What happens if at the first sign of struggle, you remove the stimulus, right? What am I telling them? And how could I possibly be capable of sending them any other message than the one I'm sending myself? If I go to the gym and I tap out after 10 minutes thinking this is too hard, when my child comes home and says, I have a hard situation going on at school, I'm not going to have the emotional resources to coach them through it. I don't know how to do that for myself. Right? So I'm going to say, you're fine. I'm, I'm going to just avoid talking about it because it's too painful to talk about. I'm going to say, we need to fix this now. I'm going to come in, guns blazing, and fight an eight-year-old. <laughs> we've all been there we have all wanted to fight an eight-year-old you know it's like at this point now ideally you approach your kids and you say and this is assuming that they're not in danger they're safe there's just some crap going on that sucks for them there's some aversive stimulus that they're having to tolerate this happens all the time on my kids soccer teams they play competitive soccer it's it can be a toxic environment, depending on the child. It's uh, the language can be homophobic. The it's a very like macho sort of environment potentially. And sometimes, you know, I'll have a child come home and say, "This is what's happening," and I say, "You know, I'm focusing on validation, and then I'm focusing on how do you want to move forward? Do you want support on this?" Or do you feel capable of handling this line? You feel like you got this, right? Because if not, uh, I'm here to help you. I'm here to support you. So you tell me I'm here to step in if you feel that you need that support. And usually they say, no, I got it. It just sucked and I needed to talk about it, right? So we talk about it and I hold them and I say, I know kids can be so mean and I'm, I'm so sorry you're experiencing this. It's, it's really a bummer. And then they kind of take care of it, usually just by ignoring the kid and kind of doing some self-talk or they might say something to the kid or to the coach themselves. I really try to take the tools that I have learned by working with myself and now use those with my kids, but I have to learn them first. So now when I struggle, I don't take it away. I take a break, I adjust my criteria for success, I gather additional supports as needed, but I don't stop. And the same goes for my kids because I can see the look on my kids' face when they're suffering and I can just remind them, breathe. Just breathe. Let's just start there. 
Isn't that something that we all need to remember in that moment when we think that that aversive stimulus is so big it's going to overtake us all? Just breathe. Don't run. Don't escape. Just in and out. It will pass. You will survive it. I'm here to be with you while it passes. I know it hurts. I know it's hard. I've got you. We can't make it go away. Right? Maybe we just literally can't. Or maybe we can't because we told ourselves that we would finish this workout or this run or this activity. But we can survive the discomfort of it. Now I spend my time walking that line between knowing how hard to push both my kids and myself while also providing the needed support to them and myself to be successful. I'm not throwing them into the deep end. I'm going in there with them and I'm saying, it's scary in here. It feels dangerous. It's kind of uncomfortable. I'm here with you. I know how to be in the deep end with you because I know how to be in the deep end with myself. Even as a personal trainer, I have a personal trainer. Even as someone with a master's degree in psychology, I have a therapist. I have family and friends and, and create alone time and space for processing. These are the things I do for myself so that I can continue to show up for myself, right? So that when I'm uncomfortable, I have the tools to tolerate it so that I can be exposed to it so that then I can teach my kids to do the same. So here's what I want you to do this week. I want you to recognize that as you learn to do this for yourself, you will be better equipped to do this for your kids. You have to look at your own suffering. You have to see it in the face without running before you can look at theirs. So think of something that's very uncomfortable for you. It can be fitness related or not, but ideally you think of something so uncomfortable that it evokes like a knee-jerk numbing behavior. I mean, probably gym, going to the gym, even maybe just walking in the gym is uncomfortable for you at this point. Maybe you have social physique anxiety and you think, I don't even like to be in that space, right? So maybe that's, that's the discomfort. If you can't think of anything, just consider the thing that's happening immediately before you go to the fridge to binge, just before you open your phone to scroll, before you drink or smoke. This will usually show you something so uncomfortable that you needed to engage in the behavior, in this behavior to escape it. So I might think, I, I'm kind of fine in life. I really don't have anything that I'm trying to escape, right? But I find myself constantly picking up my phone to scroll. It could be any number of things. It could be that the stimulus, the aversive stimulus is private. Maybe I have the thought I'm ugly and then I immediately head to the fridge because who cares anyways? Or I have the thought, oh my gosh, I have so much work to do. So I pick up my phone to scroll. Or I'm a bad mom and then I pour a glass of wine because that possibility that that's true is just too much to bear. It could even be I'm bored. And so you pick up your phone to, to scroll through social media. There's something that's very uncomfortable that you're experiencing, that you're potentially trying not to experience. But in learning how to experience this, 
we teach our kids to do the same. And you might think, why do we have to do this? <laughs> or maybe that's just me. <laughs> why do I have to do this? <laughs> this is lame. This sucks. I don't want to do this. It's uncomfortable. It hurts. Why do we have to do this? Because if you want to live a values-based life, if you want to do things that matter to you, you're going to have to tolerate some discomfort. It's, al- it's just almost impossible not to. Even if you sat in your house all day and just were totally gluttonous and gave yourself everything you wanted, there would be other discomforts, discomforts of loneliness, discomforts of a life not lived, discomforts of untapped potential. If my child says, I want to be a politician, but I hate public speaking, I'm not going to say, then don't do it. You don't have to do it. You do not have to be a politician. Choose something else. I'm going to say, well, you better learn how to public speak, and I'm here to help you with that. I'll hire you a coach. We'll practice together. We'll do whatever needs to be done. But you want to be able to move towards the thing that lights you up, the thing that excites you about your life. You want your kids to be able to do the same. You want them to move towards their dream. And you know that it's going to hurt sometimes. You know that. So you have to have the tools to help them hurt. You have to have the tools to help them hurt in a healthy way, to help them experience that discomfort. And you got to hone that in yourself first. The gym for me is the place that I do that. The gym is really not even about the gym at this point. It's just about everything that I've learned and have applied to all these other areas of my life. And that's why I went into strength training and into personal training because it's just a conduit for me. It's just like, hey, here's this tool. Yeah, look, it's weight loss. It's personal training. Like it's this, it's this object that looks like super desirable, right? But in my mind, I'm like, you're going to learn so much more. And that's, that's like the, the juicy part. That's the part that I get really excited about because looking good is, it's, it's the cherry on top. But man, knowing that you're the kind of person that does something when they say they will, knowing that you're the kind of person that can tolerate suffering, knowing that you're the kind of person that can show up for your kids when they're tolerating suffering. I mean, gosh, knowing you're the kind of person that identifies your values and then knows how to move towards them, it's like, it's so big. It's so much bigger than that. It's so much bigger than how you look, right? And it matters. And you can even use it as an example. You know, I, I use metaphors from the gym to talk to my kids to teach them they come home they're talking about how something was hard today and I'm saying oh my gosh I had that same exact thought when I was at the gym today and here's how I handled it I'm modeling for them by talking openly about how I cope with my experience because how else are they going to learn I have to share with them but I have to have something to share So I hope this was helpful. I think this is the last day we'll talk about desensitization. (laughs) I guess I just love this topic. It's been so important in my life so that I could live a life that is in line with my goals and my values and, and just be doing work and showing up for myself and other people in a way that is so valuable to me. I hope you all have a wonderful week and I will see you next time.